Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 8th, 2010. Yes, I am on the road. This is an on-the-road edition of Fighting for the Faith. Have road real travel. Yeah, I'm at an emergent conference, the uh, Big Tent Christianity. Hopefully I'll have sound bites and uh, interviews to be able to uh, share with you all from the inter- uh, from the uh, event. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And as a result, <clears throat> do I sound like I have an NPR voice right now? Yeah, I, I, I don't listen to NPR, but, uh, well, I've heard, never mind. I completely distracted myself. Ah, yes, uh, the joys of... Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically and critically, crazy things being said out there. And uh, as I've been traveling, uh, you know, you'll notice that this edition of Fighting for the Faith sounds a little bit different. And the reason why is because I'm actually recording this one in North Carolina uh, and the recording uh, studio that I'm in is not a studio. It's kind of a makeshift thing that I put together um, in North Carolina. Uh, long story. Anyway, uh, so the acoustics in here are not uh, are not zeroed out the way I like them to be zeroed out. And as a result of it, I have no idea what the quality is going to ultimately be once we get this into into the production computer and mix everything down and apply all the the wonderful magical software things and uh anyway so i do, i the the conference at the time i'm recording this uh the conference hasn't started yet and so uh i'm looking forward to uh to seeing and hearing all kinds of interesting emergent theology uh but on the way over uh traveling from indiana to uh, north carolina I I have a listener who sent me uh, the entire Patricia King Glory School, and uh, oh wow, <laughs> oh wow is all I can say. And uh, I've been listening to Patricia King. Uh, well, I, I probably have about six hours of Patricia King in my brain right now, and I'm trying to figure out how to get it out. Um, the one thing that what's really interesting about her is is that. She is slick. I mean, in the video segments, uh, the the audio that we play, I mean, she, you know, 
she seems like she's always crazy all the time. Oh, no, no, no. She actually sounds somewhat sane in this uh, glory school thing. And her deception is so subtle. It, 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 in the early portions of the glory school, oh, my goodness. It, uh, you know, I'm sitting there listening to this thing going, wow, she's preaching the gospel. And then she starts adding things to it. And unless, you, unless you're really good at understanding the scriptures, you, you will miss the things that she's subtly adding to it. And, it, it, oh, man, I, wow. <laughs> nature of deception. The nature of deception is always to find a way to import new ideas that are contrary to God's word, at least a clean, a clean reading of it, if you know what I mean. I one of the one of the attributes of the Word of God is 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 clarity. It's 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 actually understandable. Now that doesn't mean that the Bible that there aren't passages that you have you don't have to work at in order to figure out uh, you know what it is that the Holy Spirit was intending to say in that passage. There are some passages that really require some some uh, application, some work, some elbow grease in in the mental area. Um, that being said, the, the gist of Scripture is actually pretty simple, and um, I'm convinced that uh, if pastors would spend less time writing sermons and more time uh, just uh, like a fine wine, letting God's Word breathe, you know, stop chopping it up and giving me tiny little uh, Bible uh, nuggets, you know, tiny little pieces of Bible, read it. Read it. Open up the book and just start reading it. I think there'd be a transformation in preaching, teaching, and Christian doctrine if uh, pastors would actually let the Bible loose. <laughs> Instead, they must feel they feel like they must control things, and as a result of it, you know, assist the Holy Spirit by not letting the Holy Spirit do its work. I just I don't get it. Yeah, just me. I pet peeve. So. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, oh boy, uh, this is going to be all kinds of interesting. Uh, yesterday, we didn't get to the story that I said that I wanted to get to, the Glenn, uh, the uh, Christian Post story, and Glenn Beck shall lead them. Yeah, and Glenn Beck shall lead them. We're going to take a look at that article from the Christian Post today. Um, I, I'm just kind of realistically looking at uh, my time here. There's a, uh, if, if we get to it, there's a story in the Telegraph in the UK, God, God is no longer male. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I I was not aware that God had um, you know uh, a procedure done on him. Um, and you're saying, wait a second, Chris, God is spirit. Yeah, I I understand that, but God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Eternal Son. Uh, well, He has a, a human body. Now He's uh, you know so yeah the 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 Son of God who will reign forever. In eternity, on the throne of David, um, circumcised. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, this thing from the Telegraph in the UK if we get time. Um, we also didn't get a chance to listen to uh, Jonathan Brink. I, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm going to be seeing him over the next couple of days. And uh, he's uh, his book called "Discovering the God Imagination." We're going to play the promo video number one on that. And um, and where I really want to spend some time today in the first hours, I want you to hear uh, the, you know, maybe 13, 14 minutes of uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen. Dr. Terry Mortensen just doing a fantastic job of laying down from the Hebrew text of Genesis itself 
the fact that uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is not poetry. Nope, it's not poetry at all. In fact, it is historical narrative. And uh, if, oh man, after you hear this, you're going to sit there and go, oh my goodness, there's no way you can possibly believe that it's poetry unless you are willfully uh, ignorant or suppressing the truth. Just plain and simple. So we're going to be doing that today. And then our sermon review in uh, hour number uh, two, and uh, it's a pretty long one, is uh, I'm going to be reviewing a sermon by uh, Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Since I'm in North Carolina, I thought I would uh, review a, a, a Stephen Furtick sermon. And uh, it's about it's called Christ Alone, and uh, I think the subtitle is You No Longer Suck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, you know... And unfortunately, now remember, the last time I reviewed a Stephen Furtick sermon, I was able to play the ukulele um, uh, version of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Unfortunately, I will not be able to do that this time. And the reason is that, well, it's not a good sermon. So, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff that we need to do today. Uh, You know, make yourself comfortable, much ground to cover. It's going to be a rip-roaring fun edition of Fighting for the Faith because we try to have a little bit of fun along the way here. Uh, we're not opposed to uh, humor, no. And and the one thing I've noticed about uh, heretics is they take themselves way too seriously, which kind of opens themselves up to uh, humor attacks on my part. So you know, just it's, uh, it's a service that I provide for them. Anyway, uh, fu- let's uh, dive into the program here and um, from the uh, Christian Post. I'm sorry, Christianity Today. From Christianity Today, the headline reads, And Glenn Beck shall lead them. (sighs) I can hardly wait to get into this. This was written by uh, Tobin Grant of Christianity Today. Uh, It's about Glenn Beck's uh, Black Robe Regiment. Uh, at, At his rally last weekend on the Washington Mall, Fox News host Glenn Beck brought... 240 clergy on stage. Uh, Harkening back to the Revolutionary War, Beck called the group the Black Robe Regiment. He said uh, the clergy all locked arms, saying the principles of America need to be taught from the pulpit. Okay. Um, Okay. uh, Hello? Um, Just that last sentence. Uh, Glenn Beck said that the uh, principles of America need to be taught from the pulpit. Yeah, uh, if I attended a congregation that where the, rather than teaching from the Bible, the pastor opened up the Constitution, um, I would be out of that congregation lickety split. But listen, churches are embassies. Yeah, they're embassies of a different kingdom. And uh, the people who show up at the embassy Sunday in and Sunday out are there not to be entertained. They're there not to learn how to be good American citizens. They're there to hear from their great God and King, Jesus Christ, and to uh, hear about the, um, the principles of the kingdom of God. And as those principles, uh, well, you know, through the working of the Holy Spirit, transform their lives, they live according to a different set of laws. See, see, listen, um, 
we, we're all familiar with diplomatic immunity. I mean, here's the here's the gist of diplomatic immunity, or one of the facets of it is that uh, it went. Let's say that uh, Russia sends uh, you know you know people an ambassador to the United States of America, and they live at the Russian embassy there in Washington D.C. Um, the Russian living in Washington, D.C. has diplomatic immunity and is subject to and lives under the laws of Russia. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's now <clears throat> apply this here. Um, at the embassy of the kingdom of God, known as the church that you attend, um, you are bound uh, most strictly, in, in a very true sense, to the laws of the culture and the uh, way of life from the mother country, and that would be the kingdom of God. That being the case, uh, the United States, while it just happens to be the place that your congregation, your embassy is located, and as a result of it, um, teaching American principles from your church's pulpit is treason. Yeah, it's that's that's not what you're supposed to do. That would be treasonous. Yeah, it would be a betrayal of uh, uh yeah, the laws. Yeah, you, you understand what I'm saying? So already we've got a problem here. Um uh, let me continue with the story. The Black Robe Regiment included prominent evangelicals including James Dobson and Richard Land, uh president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission according to Beck. Beck said he began organizing the Black Robe reg Regiment by gathering a couple of dozen evangelical leaders, which is reported to have occurred on June 30th in New York. Participants included Dobson, Land, John Hagee. Oh, good night. Uh, Beck said he told the uh, leaders, I'm asking you not to stand with me, but to stand with freedom and liberty, because we're all going to lose our religious freedom if we don't. He recounted the following uh, and I ended and I ended and sat down and James Robinson uh, Robinson pounded the table and he said, brothers, I know all of you here. And he said, I can testify that the things that this man says are true because I felt them, too. And he said, shame on us uh, uh, for the Lord coming to each of us and telling us, but uh, but us not doing it. And then he said something that I thought was very funny, quote, and so the Lord has to go to a Mormon and an alcoholic on top of that. And he said, and I will stand, I will stand. And all of them, one right after the other, one person said, I can't, I'll lose half of my congregation. And that's when Dr. Dobson said, what kind of a hypocrite are we if we believe these things, but we don't say them? And Dr. Dobson said, he looked at me right in the eye, and Dr. Dobson is a guy who doesn't, you know, he doesn't agree on theology, and we have our theological differences. And he looked me right in the eye, just a real integrity and power, and he said, I will, I will start tomorrow, I will start tomorrow, and he did, and he did. <sighs> Listen, no problem with, you know, the fact that uh, we all have dual citizenship as Christians, that we can work together as Americans to protect the Constitution, which is the law of the land. Um, don't have a problem doing, you know, you're working with other Americans, whether they be Mormon, atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, or whatever. Okay, um, but I do have a problem when 
different religious groups come together and the the um the underlying subtext of the whole thing is is that apparently we're all praying to and worshiping the same god anyway that that would be syncretism and so yeah we got a there's all kinds of confusion here and i think this thing is not shaken out yet and uh lands uh interview on national public radio was whew, a mess to say the least all right moving along here um let's see here what do i want to um cover okay yeah i th- i think i have time for this before the first break um, God no longer a male, um, uh, Scottish Episcopal Church rules. Oh, <laughs> apparently they've got inside information, and um, Jesus has been neutered. Um, let's see here. Um, a, this is, Who wrote this, by the way? Let me see if I, got, if I have a byline on this story. I No, actually, I don't. Okay, this is just interesting. Okay. Uh, no, uh, God no longer male, Scottish Episcopal Church rules. A new order of service produced by the Scottish Episcopal Church has caused controversy by removing masculine references to God. Well, then which God are they uh, referring to? Because the, the Bible is absolutely replete. It's chock full of uh, references to God that are in the masculine, including God the Holy Spirit. Um, the new form of worship, which removes words such as Lord, He, his, him, and mankind from services has been written by the church in an attempt to acknowledge that God is, quote, beyond human gender. God is beyond uh, human gender. Yeah, that kind of misses the point, though, don't you think? I mean, because if you faithfully translate uh, the original text from either Hebrew or Greek or in uh, some cases Aramaic um, into uh, in, into English. When you do the translation work, you find out that the pronouns that God the Holy Spirit chose to have inspired and written in the biblical text are, <clears throat> get this, masculine. Yeah, that's right. And again, then keep in mind, when we talk about God incarnate, Jesus, who is uh, God in human flesh, still continues to be, by the way, um, that, um, well, he was circumcised. Yes, that's true. It's uh, recorded in the Gospels for us that Jesus on the eighth day after he was born, uh, yeah, that'd be eight days after Christmas, um, you know, rather than heading off to the uh, mall to uh, return schlocky Christmas gifts, uh, they, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph instead took Jesus to the temple and, um, yeah, had him circumcised. So it, it kind of begs the question here, um, are they are they acknowledging how God has revealed himself in his own word? Or are the people there in the uh, Episcopal Church in Scotland um, pretty much instead trying to craft a God in their own image? And um, work with me here. Um, Idolatry is a very interesting thing. Okay, Back in the day, uh, idolaters were, they, they had to be artisans. I mean, very creative people. They would go and they would chop down a tree and they would use part of it for firewood, maybe some of it for planking and stuff like that. But then there's a, you know, a portion of it left. They thought, hmm, you know, I, I'm going to craft a god for myself. And so, you know, a- after, you know, chopping down the tree and using part of it for firewood and part of it for something else, they would then you know, chisel out of the wood something that looked like, you know, a created being of some kind, a bird, a fish, uh, uh, 
you know, a human being, who knows, you, you, you name it, and it, it's some created thing. And then what they would do is they would say, oh, you are my God. You are the God that created me. I will worship you. And so what do they do? They bow down to this lifeless, speechless piece of wood that they've made into a, quote, God. And wouldn't you know it, they're not really worshiping the one true God. They're just engaging in tomfoolery because they're worshiping a lifeless piece of wood. They are calling it their God. Now, today, idolaters are far, far, far more uh, creative in in this sense that... um, well, maybe it's just that they've lost their artisan skills, but they're they're far more creative in the imagination department because what they've done is, you know, listen, it's it. I understand that with all the Nintendo uh, and PlayStation games that need to be played today, and all the television programming that needs to be caught up with on the TiVo, that if you're going to be into in, in, in the um, business of idolatry. You know, going out and learning a craft and and learning how to cut stone or to uh, fashion gold or silver or to you know uh, carve wood that well that takes work. And so what folks do rather than do that, what they do is they they their God just is you know this idea. And so you know they, they'll they'll look across the different concepts that, that may be out there regarding deity. And then they'll reach out with their feelings and say, well, the God that I believe in um, likes burritos because I'm overweight. Um, the God I believe in, um, you know, he, and so what they do is they kind of smorgasbord and cobble together some kind of a Frankenstein God uh, based upon attributes that appeal or don't appeal to them in particular. So nowadays in the church, um, the church has let idolaters uh, start running the show. Well, we got to be seeker sensitive. We we've got to reach the world. Don't you take a look at our numbers? I mean, a uh, hundred years ago we have we had over fifty nine percent of the population in our churches, and now we're down to thirty. And if we don't make some serious changes and and give the people the God that they want, then our churches are going to die. And to which I say, if you give the people the God that they want, then your church is already dead. Yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, because you cease to be a church when you give people the God that they want. So nowadays with feminism being what it is and, and uh, you know, all these gender things, well, the folks there at the Episcopal, Scottish Episcopal Church have decided that they're going to allow the idolaters to begin to mold and fashion their own god and but and they're not going to challenge them on it and so um if they were to make a statue of their god um it would be like pat remember pat from the uh, saturday night live um uh comedy show you, the 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 shtick was that you were always trying to figure out whether pat was a guy or a girl and uh, and and try as you might, you know, leading questions, open-ended questions, you know, uh, following Pat to the restroom to see which restroom Pat would go into. You can never somehow Pat always found a way, unknowingly at that, to avoid answering the question whether Pat was a guy or a girl. Yeah, and so you know, the God that the uh, Scottish Episcopal Church now is setting is setting up. If 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 somebody were to actually you know take the time to carve this deity into stone or wood, well, it would it would be like Pat. You just wouldn't be able to tell um, because you know because 
God is um, beyond uh, human gender. God is well; he's beyond that. He might he might even be somewhat to the southwest of it, but it, for sure he's beyond human gender. Let me continue reading. So Episcopal bishops have approved the introduction of more inclusive language. Well, actually, see, inclusion is kind of a, is a strange word. Okay, um, from whose point of view is this inclusive language? From the point of view of the idolatrous sinner who wants a god in their own image, sure, it looks inclusive. But from the point of view of the one true God, this is this is a move for exclusivity. He's been excluded uh, uh, from church because of the way, uh, because of his nature and how he has revealed himself. So it might be inclusive from the point of view of of, of idolaters. But from the point of view of God, these people have decided that they're going to exclude the one true God and how he has revealed himself. So Episcopal bishops have approved the introduction of more inclusive language, which deliberately removes references suggesting that God is of male gender. Yeah, I wonder what they would do when, you know, in the liturgy of, you know, when it came to the lectionary reading for um, you know, the Epiphany season, for the um, circumcision of Jesus. Traditionalists have criticized the changes. Traditionalists, yeah. See, you're if you criticize this, you're just a traditionalist. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the folks who actually understand what the Bible says and teaches? The folks who are right. Um, the uh, traditionalists have criticized the changes on the grounds that they smack of political correctness. You think, and uh, because they believe that they are not consistent with the teachings of the Bible. True on both counts. The alterations have been made to provide an alternative to the established 1982 liturgy, which, like the Bible, refers to God as a man. The uh, new order of service, which can be used by priests if they have difficulties with the male God. <sighs> yeah, well, if you have difficulties with the male God, that's okay. You can have Pat. Yeah. Yes, those of you who, are, who have difficulties with the God who has revealed himself, as uh, being male, uh, we have the pat God, and you can't figure out what he is. And, and if you were to lift his dress, I, I know you're saying, but guys don't wear dresses. But see, we can't. We have to be inclusive. If you were to lift this dress, then um, it would look like a Ken doll. <sighs> yeah, yeah. It, it, what, what is this? Just plain and simple. This is idolatry. Yeah, fashioning a God in your own image. Plain and simple, but without the means of a stone or a rock or anything like that to, you know, you know, to spruce it up a little bit. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. Alright. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 
off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if you have a problem with the God of the Bible, God doesn't let you substitute a different deity for himself. Yeah, he will be the one with whom you will have to deal with. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by either clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, looking at my time here, making executive decisions. You know what? I want you to hear Terry Mortensen. Um, is, is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that all poetry or is it a historical narrative? I mean, when if you listen to Rob Bell and Brian McLaren, they talk about the Genesis poem. And, uh, well, Dr. Terry Mortensen, who's been doing some work with them, um, the answers in Genesis, folks. Um, he has a brutally brilliant, um, how shall I put it, uh, <clears throat> lecture on this particular issue. And, uh, well, at the end of it, you will realize there ain't no way um, on earth that uh, the Gen- Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is poetry. Yeah, uh, here is uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen. We're going to go from the technical science into the less technical biblical studies, but I hope that I can give you some things that will will deepen your understanding of uh, why we believe that Genesis is teaching a literal six-day creation, a global flood, and a, and a recent, uh, a very recent history. We live in a in a world today where the church has a lot of different compromised positions, the gap theory, the day gap day view. Don't know if you've heard of that one. That's where you have literal days, but a gap of millions of years between each of the days. Uh, There's the day age view that each of the days are millions of years. There's the view that Genesis 1 is mythology, just like the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians and Egyptians had creation myths and flood myths. So did the ancient Jews. And then there's the promised land view. One of my professors in Old Testament holds this view. He says that the Hebrew word for earth used in verse 1 of Genesis 1 is referring to the whole planet. But from then on in the rest of the chapter, the same Hebrew word he interprets as referring to the promised land, which he equates with the Garden of Eden. And uh, it's a really clever argument, but seriously flawed. And then we have the framework hypothesis, which says that the day's of cre- the, the Genesis 1 is not really a uh, historical account. It's a literary framework to teach theology and morality. And uh, we'll look a little bit uh, more at that later. 
out of these different views of interpreting Genesis 1, and of course we have the, the gap theory, or the uh, local flood view and the, uh, the peaceful flood view, as well as the global flood view. Out of all of that, you develop three views of earth history uh, in the church today. The view that was almost universally believed by the church for 18 centuries is what we call the biblical young earth creationist view. A supernatural creation week, SCW, uh, about 6,000 years ago. Some young earth creationists will push that creation date back to uh, about 10,000 or 12,000 years. Um, I appreciate them, but I disagree with them on that point. And then a global flood about uh, 2,500 years before Christ. And then uh, the rest of history up to the present time. That was the dominant view in church history for 18 centuries, almost the universal belief. It perished in the early 19th century, and by about the time of Darwin's book, virtually the whole church had accepted the millions of years. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that uh, some Christians began to return to the young earth view, and that has been growing in popularity within the church ever since. But two other dominant views in the church are the progressive creationist view. The progressive creationists uh, reject Darwinian evolution. They reject biological evolution, but they accept astronomical and geological evolution. So they accept the Big Bang and the billions of years of cosmic and stellar evolution, and they accept the geological ages and uh, the order of events in which creatures appear The only thing that they insist on is that God supernaturally uh, created the cosmic egg that became the Big Bang. And every so often over the course of those millions and billions of years, he supernaturally created the first forms of life, the first fish, the first amphibians, the first reptiles. But those creation events were separated by millions of years. The other view that is popular in the church is theistic evolution. And the theistic evolutionist accepts all three uh, strands of evolution. Cosmic evolution for explaining the universe, geological evolution for explaining the rock layers, and biological evolution for explaining the origin of living creatures. And so in the theistic evolutionist view, um, they would argue that the Bible teaches that God created but science tells us how and when. And Francis Collins has been quoted uh, several times uh, in this conference, and he is a leading theistic evolutionist. So let's look at this question. I want to share some reasons why those last two views are wrong and why uh, we believe the Bible really is teaching the young earth creationist view. Before we look at the details, we first need to answer a very important question. And that is, we need to answer the question, what kind of genre of literature is Genesis 1 to 11? Anyone who's read the Bible uh, very much at all will recognize that there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. There are uh, parables. There are prophetic visions or dreams. There uh, is historical narrative. In fact, about two-thirds of the Old Testament is historical narrative. About one-third of the New Testament is. There are epistles. And there are uh, proverbs and poetry. So what is Genesis 1 to 11? Is that poetry? Is that mythology? Is that some kind of figurative 
text or is it historical narrative? There's a number of reasons for concluding that it is all historical narrative. First is to look at uh, some of the characteristics of the text. And there are a number of reasons to conclude that this uh, whole portion of Scripture, and especially Genesis 1, is narrative, historical narrative, just like Joshua, just like the book of Numbers, just like uh, Judges and Ruth and Samuel and Kings. One is the sentence structure. When we look at Genesis 1, we have a very distinctive sentence structure. In the first verse, we have, in the beginning, God created. And the verb there is uh, bara which is translated created, and it is in the uh, perfect verb form in Hebrew. And that is uh, characteristic of the beginning of a narrative section. And then you have in verse 3, then God said in English, but in Hebrew, it's then said God. The then is a translation in this case of a little, a single letter in Hebrew. It's called the vav or the wow, depending on which Old Testament scholar you're talking to, but it's the same letter. And it's attached to the verb. And it is attached to a particular form of the verb called the imperfect verb form. And as you go through Genesis 1, you see at verse 3, imperfect verb attached to the vav, and that verbal form is called the vav consecutive. And so you have, then God said, and was light and saw God and separated God and called God and so on. Right through the whole of Genesis 1, virtually every verse begins with this vav consecutive. You go into chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all the way through Genesis. It's that vav consecutive. And that indicates the narrative the continuation of the narrative account. The Vav consecutive is almost never used in Hebrew poetry. That's a very distinctive characteristic of Hebrew narrative. And we have a chapter in the book, uh, Coming to Grips with Genesis, 14 scholars, all theologians, defending the, uh, the, the young earth creationist view from a, a theological, biblical, and historical perspective. And one of the chapters is all about that imperfect verb form in Genesis 1. And Dr. Stephen Boyd, who's a a Hebrew scholar, uh, compares Genesis 1 to 40 poetic texts in the Old Testament that nobody disagrees is poetic, and 40 narrative texts in the Old Testament that nobody disagrees is Hebrew narrative, uh, historical narrative. And he shows that Genesis 1 on the basis of a very uh, detailed statistical analysis of the verbs, that it is 99.999% certain that Genesis 1 is historical narrative. Well, let's go on and look at some more evidence. Not only does the second sentence structure indicate this, but there's a lack of poetic features in Genesis 1 and in the rest of uh, Genesis 1 to 11, except for that moment after Eve was created when Adam became very poetic. And uh, all the men would know that if you woke up after a dream and saw a beautiful woman, you'd be poetic at that moment also. But the most important characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. I'll just give you a couple of examples. 
in Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. The first half of the verse is repeated in the second half with a parallel idea. Sometimes the parallelism is synonymous, so the first half of the verse is repeated in synonymous words. Sometimes it's uh, the opposite for contrast, but that's a parallelism. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The second part of the verse doesn't repeat the to declare part, but that's assumed in the context, and so you have that parallelism. In Psalm 136, you have a different kind of parallelism. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. Now you have the first verse is repeating the same idea in the second verse, in the first parts of both verses, and then you have the repeated refrain running through the whole psalm. So these kinds of parallelisms are very common in Hebrew poetry. They don't exist in Genesis 1 to 11. It's historical narrative. It's not poetry. But then, say, then some say, uh, particularly in the framework hypothesis view, that there is a, a sort of parallelism. If we look at the text, we see that on days 1, 2, and 3, God created the environments for creatures. And then on day 4, 5, and 6, he filled those environments with creatures. So it's a beautiful parallelism, the framework hypothesis people say. On day one, God creates the heavens. On day four, he fills the heavens. On day two, God creates the, the uh, water in the sky. And on day five, he fills the water in the sky with birds and fish. And then on day three, he creates the dry land and plants. And then on day six, he fills the dry land with animals. It's a beautiful parallelism. Unless you look at the details. And then it's not so nice and tidy. Let's look at a couple of details. On day two, it was not the sky that was created. It was the expanse. The Hebrew word there is rakia. And uh, the rakia was made on day two to separate the waters below from the waters above. When we come to day four, we are told three times that God made the sun, moon, and stars in the rakia. And verse 17 says, God placed them in the rakia. So the sun, moon, and stars were not created to fill something that was created on verse 1. They were created to fill something that was made on day 2. So it's not a nice parallelism. Uh, Then as far as the fish, the water was made on day 1, but seas, the the specific word seas, uh, was not made until day 3. But the fish, it said very clearly on day five that the fish filled the waters of the seas. So the fish didn't fill something that was made on day two. They filled something that was made on day three. And then we note that on day six, nothing was made to fill the seas that were made on day three. So it's not a nice, neat parallelism. It breaks down. You know, we sometimes say the devil is in the details. In this case, it's the Lord who is in the details. It's the devil who is in the superficialities. And uh, we have a chapter uh, in Coming to Grips dealing with the framework hypothesis, a very thorough analysis and refutation by an Old Testament scholar. Uh, not only do we have the lack of parallelism in the poetic, uh, in, in uh, the Genesis narrative, we also lack figurative language. 
in, the, in Hebrew poetry, there's a lot of figurative language. So we read things like, uh, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. Well, God isn't literally a rock. He's not literally a building. That's figurative language. We don't have that kind of language uh, in Genesis 1 through 11. A very common word in Hebrew poetry is the word like or as. That doesn't appear uh, in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, then we have in Hebrew poetry sound techniques. Uh, some, for example, the most common or the most famous example of this is uh, Psalm 119, which has a series of eight groups, a uh, group of eight verses as you go through the psalm. And every verse in the first uh, group of eight verses begins with a word that begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. You go to the next eight verses. Every verse begins with a word that in Hebrew that begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, bait. Uh, sometimes there are sound techniques where, uh, like rhyming uh, in English. We don't have those in Genesis 1 or, Genesis, or the rest of Genesis 1 to 11. But note this. Even if we concluded that Genesis 1 was poetry, that doesn't mean it's not literal history. Because two of the Psalms are written in poetic form, but they recount the history of Israel. So Psalm 136, for example, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, that's literal statement of historical truth, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and made Israel pass through the midst of it. That's a statement of literal historical truth. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So God can speak literal historical truth even in poetic uh, uh, form. Genesis 1 is not poetry. (laughs) There you have it. Uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen uh, speaking on behalf of the uh, Answers in Genesis folks. Genesis uh, 1 ain't poetry. It's historical narrative. And all you have to do is test out what the heretics are saying. Oh, well, we're going to look at the Genesis poem. It's a great piece of poetry, but we can't look at it as history. And yet the very grammar that God the Holy Spirit used to write Genesis 1 through 11, it's all historical narrative. If you would compare it with other historical narrative texts, it's historical narrative. If you compare it to Hebrew poetry, it doesn't have any of the characteristics of Hebrew Hebrew poetry. And why is this important? Why is this so important? The reason why is because our salvation is what's at stake. The gospel itself is what is at stake. Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, is the second Adam. In Adam, all became sinners, and Jesus Christ is the one through whom all who are, are saved are saved. He is likened to be the second Adam. The, the reason why Jesus was on the cross completely falls flat um, if there wasn't a literal historical Adam. And if, Je- if Genesis is just poetry, design, really it's, it's, a, it's an ancient Near Eastern Semitic uh, Mediterranean poem of, a poem of the beginning of the world. No, it's not. It's quite different than any of the ancient poetry from the uh, early, from antiquity, it, it ain't poetry. It it's narrative, and if you look at the text, you study 
the distinctives between poetry and narrative, you can only come to one conclusion. It's narrative. It ain't poetry. And those who are trying to tell you it's poetry are trying to smuggle stuff in that don't belong. Basically undermine God's word and his and the authority of his word and tell you a different story to craft a God in their own image, if you would. Um, engage in idolatry. They don't like the God who's been revealed in Scripture, so they've got to find a way to get rid of him and replace him with a Christianish, you know, with with Christian vocabulary and biblical vocabulary sounding deity, uh, basically a false god dressed up in Jesus's clothing. Yeah, well that doesn't work. No, it's not Christianity when that happens. It's still idolatry. Okay, we're going to we're just a couple minutes early. We're going to take our second break and when we come back we're going to be doing our sermon review. We got a Stephen Furtick sermon that we're going to be reviewing today. So uh, lots more of Fighting for the Faith left ahead. And uh, as always, want to remind you, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean... How many ties and 
dust collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud Nine Living. Cloud Nine Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Well, I got to tell you, I I wanted so badly to be able to play the ukulele version of the Good, the Bad, the Ugly for this sermon. I mean, the topic is there. You're going to hear the gospel, but I, I, I won't play the good version, and there's a reason why. But before I get ahead of myself, let's... Uh, Cue up the um, sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Pastor Stephen Furtick presiding. You know, I watch and research and read this guy and pray for him constantly. That's probably the best way to put it. This is somebody that I see who's having an internal struggle. And uh, it's almost as if there's two of them. That's the only way I can describe it. There's two verdicts. Now, I'm not saying he has some kind of a bipolar disease or anything like that. I I don't know how else to describe it. He's got two competing theologies running around in his head, and they actually contradict each other. On the one hand, he has these visions that he thinks he has, and these uh, visions of grandeur and, and great accomplishments, and, and kind of being the, like the next Billy Graham and Joel Osteen all kind of mixed up into one. And then the other guy. This is a guy who seriously wrestles with texts and... Um, sees the contradiction, sees the issue, sees that there's false doctrine out there and is willing to speak boldly against it, and yet can't seem to figure out how to get the two different competing theologies to coexist happily. And the reason why is because they can't. And so his sermon is entitled, get this, Christ Alone, You Don't Suck Anymore. It's uh, The text for the sermon is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and I think that actually might be the problem, is that he, this is the first sermon in the sermon series itself, and it just it doesn't really wrestle with the entire book of Romans. We're kind of beginning midstream, and as a result of it, he presents the gospel with a big but. No, that B-U-T-T, I mean B-U-T. Yeah, don't don't be thinking that. I knew what you were thinking because I'm sinful too. Anyway, what I mean by that is is that 
it's it's highly qualified, and as a result of it, you know, I, I'm absolutely convinced. I mean, especially after that segment I played in the first hour, that evangelicals are uncomfortable with the fact that God is the one who saves, God is the one who sanctifies, God is the one who does this great work in us. And as a result of it, they, they in, in many cases, they display, um, well, we ran out of music here. They display, um, for lack of a better way to put it, um, unbelief, a, a lack of faith in what God's word, what God has said through his word about what his word does. As a result of it, I mean, they're absolutely terrified of the free forgiveness of sins because uh, their big worry is that that's going to lead people into sin, that somehow they're going to take the grace of God and turn it into a license for sin. And, and you know what? The funny thing is, is that God, the gospel's counterintuitive in this sense. It doesn't, it actually, the gospel doesn't lead us into sin and um, it leads us out of it. It sets us free from it. And so we're going to have to do some cleanup work and add a little bit of context to uh, what Stephen Furtick is preaching in this sermon. Now, you're going to hear the gospel, but the problem is, is that it's highly qualified, and he discusses it in such a way that he recognizes that he's dealing with the topic theologically, and he just can't do that. No, 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 we've got to find a way to, oh, man. And so what he offers with the right hand, he ends up snatching away with the left, and that that's the reason why I I didn't play the good music for this, because this is a sermon that needs some biblical cleanup. And, and at the same time, I recognize that there's some good, there's actually some merit to the sermon. It's just frustrating to uh, listen to this, but at the same time, I'm encouraged. I'm sitting going, why are you encouraged? Because as somebody who has been studying and watching Stephen Furtick now for, oh man, three, four years, um, I've seen progress, and I I think that the wrestling is good, and so I will continue to pray for him, and uh, and I get to see him next week. So, but of course, I'm sure he's not going to be all that excited to talk to me. So I'll see him from afar. I'm I'm sure that I'll, I'll be able to say that I was in the same room as him. But I'm he's, yeah, I seriously doubt he's going to want to talk to me. But anyway, so here is uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick. The name of the sermon is Christ Alone. That's the name of the sermon series, Christ Alone, and you don't suck anymore. And uh, listen carefully, and we'll kind of unpack some of this stuff as we go. And uh, anyway, here's Pastor Stephen Furtick. I want to give some special love to our Uptown campus. You guys are phenomenal. We're so grateful for what God is doing in the epicenter of our city, as well as our Matthews campus. You guys are growing, and God is blessing. And to my remnant at the Providence 1245, you guys are hardcore and phenomenal. We love you so much. We begin a new series today called Christ Alone. How could you go wrong with a series called Christ Alone from this chapter of Scripture, Romans 8? Phenomenal. I'll say more about it in a moment. Um, But first, I want to give you a little context for this series. It feels right now like our church has a tremendous sense of spiritual momentum. We just finished a series called F-Bomb. It was really a two-week expanded teaching And I knew that the Lord was going to move in a powerful way. Uh, Again, I was so overwhelmed hearing your testimonies, how God is working in your heart to set you free from offenses, uh, from uh, scandals um, that really had nothing to do with your own decisions. But uh, many of you have been hurt deeply. And I'm reminded again 
uh, how serious it is to be a pastor and a preacher of the gospel um, because uh, truly the, the amount of hurt, pain, and, uh, and, and weight and, and shame that, that people carry with them, um, it never ceases to amaze me. It's staggering. And uh, we were able to pray as a staff for all of you who submitted um, the different areas in your life where God is doing a, a work of forgiveness. Um, there were just shy of a thousand people who responded last week when I asked you, where is God calling you to forgive? And uh, our staff um, laid their hands on your prayer requests and called your name out before God. And we're standing with you and believing um, that God is going to enable you to walk in, in constant freedom and that he's going to continue to guide you and continue to give you grace and power. Let's just uh, clap our hands at all of our locations and thank God for the great things he's doing. As we begin, I got a little something I needed to do. I've been preaching too long the last couple of weeks. I think it's because I had a couple weeks off. And uh, there is a clock that tells me when I'm supposed to finish preaching, but um, I've gotten pretty good at ignoring that clock. And that's just not right because, you know, I need to honor the time limits that we set and uh, keep things moving on a good schedule. And so uh, there's this little timer that we use at uh, our house, and I saw it today. We use it for our children uh, to give them a certain amount of time to watch TV or to play a game on the computer or whatever the case may be. Um, and uh, so we set the timer, and I just decided it may be helpful for me to set the uh, egg timer um, to a certain amount of time. I'm not going to tell you exactly uh, what the amount of time is, but uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be set. Um, there it is. And I'll- Okay, uh, <clears throat> Stephen, uh, you're three minutes, 33 seconds into this sermon, and you're just now setting the timer. You're cheating, dude. That's just, yeah. I'll just put it right here. You won't have to look at it all day, but it'll just, uh, it'll go off when that amount of time has elapsed and, uh, and, and then I'll stop preaching wherever I am in my sermon. Just when that egg, um, does its thing and rings, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. If I'm in the middle of a sentence, I'm going to say, amen. I'm going to close in prayer and, uh, I'm going to send you on your way. But, uh, that's just something I'm trying for me. I'm also, okay. No, okay. We'll, we'll hold them accountable to this. Because it actually plays into the sermon. Yeah, it does. It. <laughs> we'll come back to this. He's just promised verbally to all of the people who are attending his Elevation Church camp high uh, that uh, he when the when the timer goes off, he's going to stop and close in prayer because that's something he says he needs to do. So he's just given. Made a verbal contract, if you would, uh, with the people in his uh, churches. Well, you know, you know what I'm saying. It'll play in. It'll actually play into the sermon review. So keep that in mind. He's made a promise. Let's see if he keeps it. So I'm going to stop going to the bathroom about an hour or two before I preach, and I think that might create, you know, an urgency for me. Okay, that no, 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 no. I did no. Man, I did not need that visual. Whew! <clears throat> yeah, good preachers, they are capable of painting word pictures. And that was a painting I, I need scrubbed out of my brain. Ugh. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on some different methods. But right now I'm eating in the time that I could be spending preaching. I'll take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, please see one of our wonderful uh, VIP people. Before you leave, they'll put one in your hands. You can bring it back next week. Uh, if you are sitting next to someone who has a Bible, um, ask them if you can look on with them. We'll put the scriptures on the screen, but I'd love f- for you to actually uh, be able to see the words on the page, and I want you to develop a relationship with your Bible. In fact, that's part of what this series is about. Um, I want you to fall in love with the teachings of Scripture. And so I'm, I'm going to introduce you to one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Um, Romans chapter 8 has been called by, by some interpreters uh, the inner sanctuary in the cathedral of Christianity. Um, another commentator called it the, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden or, or a mountain peak in a range of, of mountains. And, and they're, they're alluding to the fact that within what many consider to be uh, the greatest uh, epistle in the New Testament, this chapter is the most critical chapter, or at least it's one of the most comprehensive and motivational chapters In that book of the Bible, I would say it to you this way. If the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, uh, was Led Zeppelin, Romans 8 would be his stairway to heaven. If if the Apostle Paul was Kurt Cobain, Romans 8 would be his smells like teen spirit. If the Apostle Paul, I'll dignify this a little bit. uh, (laughs) Okay. Let me tell you why I disagree with him. Okay, I get the metaphor that he's putting together, and it, and it you know, and I I understand what he's trying to grasp at. He, here's the problem: uh, when Paul wrote the epistle to the churches in Rome, okay, the book of Romans as we've come to know it, th- th- there he didn't break it up into verses and chapters. In, in chapter eight is is in a very let me let me clean this up it's the apex of part of an argument that he's making regarding salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone now i'm going to clean this up in just a minute because what we're going to do is we're going to add some context to Romans chapter 8 and it's it's absolutely imperative that you read Romans 8 in its greater context because if you don't, you you you're going to miss some important stuff regarding it, and you may be tempted to do what Pastor Furtick is doing here, and that is is that he's presenting the gospel with a big qualifier, with a big but, and you don't need to add the but uh, when you look at it in its in its fuller context. And so it, it, this kind of goes works with my theory here. I, I'm absolutely convinced that evangelicals are terrified of the gospel in its stark, naked form because it strips them of all of their self righteousness. And uh, they, I mean, they, and in some sense, it shows their lack of faith in God's word and and in the work that God does in people. Yeah. Anyway, we've talked about this, but anyway, let's continue. Was Beethoven? Romans 8 would be his fifth symphony. Uh, Let me shift out of musical gear for a moment. If the Apostle Paul were da Vinci, uh, Romans chapter 8 would be his Mona Lisa. If the Apostle Paul was George Lucas, Romans chapter 8 would be his Star Wars. Uh, You see what I'm saying? It's it's a hot 
hot passage of scripture. And, and the concepts uh, that you're going to find in Romans chapter 8 will really change your life if you'll engage with them. To that end, we're challenging all of you to read Romans chapter 8 every single day for the next 21 days as we journey through this series together. Um, I actually set a timer today on my iPhone to see exactly how long will it take you to read through Romans 8 in its entirety. And I actually took a couple of breaks in between to uh, take a sip of my Diet Coke and uh, still was able to finish the whole chapter reading it out loud at a very moderate pace in 5 minutes and 15 seconds on the dot. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm challenging you to do over the next 21 days is kind of the opposite of what we did at the beginning of 2010 as a church. We uh, participated together, at least three of you did, in this initiative to read the New Testament in 30 days. And uh, there were very few Navy SEALs standing at the end. But uh, uh, Pastor Furtick, if you remember, I reviewed that sermon and I joined you in on that uh, 30-day challenge and I did complete it. I did complete it on time with your church, which meant I had to like catch up. So I, I just want to let you know that there were some other people who did that. But, but you know, 30 days is, is kind of an accelerated pace for reading the entire New Testament. It can be done. Um, and may I suggest that rather than, you know, having people turn into Navy SEALs, that instead you instill in them a love and desire to read God's Word and constantly be in it and be working through it, you know, and teaching it so often and and much on a daily basis that they can't help but work through it every year or even less than a year. And just something to, you know, I'm not that you take my critique or anything like that, because, you know, of course, everyone knows I'm a hater. You know, I know. Yeah, see, <clears throat> you know, but just a suggestion. But uh, we wanted to get an overview of the New Testament teachings. And I said during that time, this is just a a 30 day um, zoom through the Bible. And as we zoom through the New Testament, we're going to zoom out and, and see the topography of the, the entire New Testament um, without being able to go very deep. Well, uh, in, in this season of our church, as many of us are getting reoriented to schedules um, and we're all over the place, I, I want to provide you with a way to connect with God's Word that, that may be a little more manageable. And so I challenge you over the next 21 days, uh, starting tomorrow, to every day read Romans chapter 8 and I invite you to do it the way I'm going to do it and read it out loud so your mind can really focus and so you can hear the words and feel how they form on your lips and really project your faith into the atmosphere of your life. And so I'm going to read Romans chapter 8 every day for the next 21 days. And I want you to set aside the first eight minutes of your day every day, the first eight Minutes. You may need to get some coffee in order to even feel like a Christian. But after that, I want you to give your first eight minutes to reading through Romans chapter 8. And, and what you're going to do is spend five minutes reading it. 
and then give three minutes to praying about one of the concepts that you just read about. For instance, today in Romans chapter 8, I was struck by the idea that God has given me the spirit of sonship and I can call out to him as my father. And so I started praying to God, thanking him that I can approach him as my father. And there will be no shortage of good stuff for for you to launch out in prayer and reflection as you study through this great book of the Bible. I really think you're going to love it. The Apostle Paul's uh, smash hit, his, his breakout single, his standout track, Romans chapter 8. And it's really a chapter about assurance for believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, it starts with this wonderful idea, which we will explore together today, that when you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And it ends with this idea that when you're in Christ, there is no separation. And so sandwiched between those two uh, inviolable realities, you've got this, this, this wealth and this treasury of, of, of different theological concepts. Some of it will feel foreign to you. Other parts of it, you'll go, I've heard that before. I didn't know that's where that was in the Bible. And it's just going to be awesome. But throughout the whole chapter, you're going to see this, this theme that in Christ alone, you have hope. In Christ alone, you can be strong. In Christ alone, you can face any difficulty that circumstances or opposition bring your way. In Christ alone, you're justified. In Christ alone, you can, you can face any temptation. In Christ alone, he is supreme. He is preeminent. He is all that. He is unique. He, he is sufficient for whatever you're going through in your life. Now, today, I want to preach from four verses of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And I want to ask you at all of our locations, would you stand to your feet in honor of God's Word and particularly in honor of this great passage of Scripture? Okay, I'm going to stop here for a second. I, I want to make sure that uh, you all hear this. I mean, what I'm what we've heard so far... I mean, the, the the intro to this sermon, there is much that we can thank and praise God for, much that we can say amen to. And uh, it's a, not a testimony to Stephen Furtick, it's a, it's a testimony to the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit in all of us sinners. And so I, I'm very encouraged up to this point of what I've heard, okay? Um, so I'm glad, I, I mean... We're hearing reverence, we're hearing respect, we're hearing Christ and him exalted. We're hearing salvation, really the sufficiency of Christ so far. So far. Holly and I tried to memorize Romans chapter 8 together when we were in college. And I'll be honest with you, I had mixed motives going into that deal. At the time, we were not dating and uh, that seemed to me to be the Christian precursor to flirtation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hey, baby, let's memorize a little Romans 8 to get you know, memorize a little Romans 8, you know, a little justification by faith with me. You know, and so <laughs> we only made it to about verse 10. Um, our staff is going to attempt to memorize the whole book. I mean, excuse me, the whole chapter. Uh, <laughs> by the end of uh, this, this series, 
um, pray for them. Um, if any of them make me mad, they will memorize the whole book of Romans. And that will be a blessing for their soul. But uh, essentially, um, we'll give you some memory cards on the way out. We want you to choose your challenge, but we want you to engage with this wonderful, wonderful chapter in the Bible. It's such a great chapter. I pulled a kid back to my green room uh, recently one weekend. Okay, we don't need all these other side stories. You have everyone standing in honor of the Word of God. Well, let's get to the Word of God. This is kind of a distraction. Remember, you got the egg timer going. And I told him if he would memorize uh, Romans chapter 8 by the end of the summer, I'd give him $100. And that deal doesn't apply to you. You're 36, and you, you don't need to be paid to memorize God's word, but um, it's that important to me. And uh, let me read this to you, and uh, then I'm going to preach on one specific verse. And I've got good news to share with you today. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because... Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You know what? I think I've got this part memorized. I want to start over, and I want to try to quote this from memory. I may, I may mess up a few words, but I think I got these first four verses. Okay, now here, here's where I begin to take issue. Okay, those little two stories that he told and now what he's about to do sound pious, but it's taking my focus off of what Christ has done, Christ alone, and this is no longer a Christ alone sermon. This is a, a Christ and Stephen Furtick sermon. <clears throat> let, me, let me start again from the top. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin and sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Was that 95% right? Okay, 95%. Let's pray. Lord, illuminate your word and change our hearts in these moments together. Contained in those four verses that I just read is an outstanding, remarkable truth too good to be true, yet truer than any factual data that we could ever consider. And I pray that you'll help me to set prisoners free. In Jesus' name, and everybody set together, amen. Please be seated. All right, so I need to, I need to say one thing because I want to really focus on verse 1. Um, for the rest of our time together today, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop. Great, great verse. Okay. Here's the issue. It comes in the middle, and it's the pinnacle of, a, of something that Paul built, put a foundation and put a structure on, and it's the apex. It's the, it's the cupola. It's, it's the crowning peace of all of this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the problem. If you start there and you don't explain the greater context and what's going on here, 
This is one of the reasons why this type of preaching actually falls flat, is because what kind of condemnation are we talking about? Okay, there's different, there's all kinds of different condemnations out there. What kind of condemnation is being referred to in this verse? It says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. What is that? If you don't, if, the, if you're just starting at Romans 8, or you start at Romans 12 like so many evangelicals do, you don't get the full impact of the argument that Paul is putting forth. In Romans chapter 1, from 1 to about the middle of 3, you have Paul beginning this amazing argument. Okay, and I don't, I don't mean an argument like you 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 touched me. No, I didn't touch you. You 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 touched me. You stopped touching me. Now that's not what I'm talking about. That kind of argument or even a debate. What I mean by an argument is is that he's building a case, and he he begins by condemning everybody, Jew and Greek alike, and pointing out that there's none righteous, not even one. That no one loves God. No one seeks after God. There is nobody who is righteous or will have a right standing before God by the law, either Jew or Greek, slave or, it doesn't matter. Everyone is condemned. Okay? And he and he pulls out from the Old Testament passages from the book of Psalm that 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 point this out. That their 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 mouths are are open graves, things of that nature, you know, the, the venom of asps is on their lips. I just I mean, paints this terrible picture. And then, after completely decimating everybody's self-righteousness, he then begins preaching the gospel. Okay? This other thing. But now a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And starts pointing out how the law condemns and only Christ saves. And that salvation is through faith as a gift. And that we are justified freely by God's grace. We are declared righteous before God. And then he starts painting multiple pictures of this. And then when we get to Romans chapter 6, you have the logical question that comes up. um, Well, should I sin so that God's grace may abound? I mean... One of the ways, one of the things Dr. Rosenblatt kind of drilled into my head early on was this idea. He said, You know that you're preaching the gospel correctly when people go, well, Wait a second. Does that mean I can do whatever I want? Because when the sinful nature loves to sin, <laughs> it, yeah, it just it really, really likes sin. And it does, and by nature, we don't see that sin is slavery. And as a result of it, the first impulse of of the of the dead Adam when it hears the gospel is to go, oh cool, this means I can have a license to sin like there's no tomorrow. And Paul takes that argument on in Romans chapter six, and in Romans six he t- he defines what it means to be in Christ. He then goes into Romans seven where you see this conflict playing out in his own life between. Uh, the new man who's been raised from the dead inside of him because he's a Christian, and his struggle with his uh, with his old Adam, his sinful flesh, and then Romans eight is the pinnacle piece of that, like the the icing on the cake. It's the resolve in the symphony that's been playing and building up to this point. 
You know, the song Bolero, uh, you know, the classical uh, song Bolero, it kind of begins off slow and kind of quiet and it builds up to, you know, at the end, you, you're almost like marching. Da, 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 da. Anyway, um, th- th- that's what's going on here. This is this is like the the, the hallelujah chorus in in a symphony, in an, in, an, in an opera that is building up to it. So we've got this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is like the oh, man. This is not a good place to start because you you don't get the greater context. As a result of it, let me clean up some of this. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter five. Okay, Romans chapter five, and and even this, I I challenge you go and get the greater context. Read Romans one through four to get up to this point. Okay. I begin at verse 1, and and, uh, remember, context, 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 context. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Let me pull something up in the Greek here. I just want to make sure I got my Greek tense correct. Okay, dikaios uh, anates. Okay, this is um, eris passive. Okay, perfect. Okay, uh, no, no, not, not eris passive. Perfect. Uh, uh, the um, is the is the Greek verb for being justified. Okay, um, and what's going on here is is that Paul is saying that we in the eris, it's like past tense. Um, it, it, we have been. And it's passive. This has been done to us. It's a passive participle. We have been declared righteous. We've been pronounced righteous, not by our hands, but by God, by faith. Uh, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice, in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been declared righteous and justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, did you hear that? We're going to be, because we've been declared righteous by the blood of Christ, we will be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. So when we get to Romans 8, the condemnation that is spoken of there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is specifically referring back to this antecedent in the epistle, that condemnation of the wrath of God. We continue. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one that was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many tre- trespasses brought justification. For if by the one, uh, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteous leading, uh, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you'll see he's what he's really here is he just keeps going on and on about this free gift, about grace, and us being declared righteous by Christ's work, by his work alone. So now Paul, he he puts in, you know, writes into his epistle what would be the logical question, which I'm sure is a question that he had asked of him many times as he presented the gospel, okay? So you know, he kind of comes, he puts in, you know, puts down the, the question, and he, he argues it for the person. He says, so what shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase or that grace might abound? That's a silly question. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Okay, now this is where it gets important. When did we die to sin? Paul asks a question, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life." Now, this is where it gets critical doctrinally. When the question comes up, should we sin that grace may abound, Paul says, how can we who die to sin continue to live in it? And he defines here, biblically, doctrinally, by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit, what the, what, how we are to understand what it means to be in Christ. And that comes back and ties back into our baptisms. Yeah, that's right. You want to you know what it means to be in Christ? Those of you who've been baptized, you have been baptized into Christ's death. You have been baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the folks that turn baptism into a mere symbol and something that we do miss a very critical piece that's taught in Scripture, and that is baptism is not a human work. Baptism is something done by the hand of God. Baptism is God's work on 
us and that something truly happens to people who are baptized, and that is that they are baptized into Christ's death, their hearts are circumcised by Christ, they're buried with Christ, they're raised with Christ. These are all biblical ways of putting it. So when we talk, when we get into Romans 8, when it talks about being in Christ, this is a, d- a direct reference back here to Romans 6. If you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ's death. You are in Christ. That's what Paul's referring to here. That's kind of key. So let me read that. So what what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Yeah, in our baptisms, our old selves were crucified with Christ. That substitutionary work going on here, our sins were laid upon him. That's what's being referred to here. This is Yom Kippur type language. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you or authority over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sitting there going, Chris, you sure are reading a lot. Yep, it's important. Now Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Did you catch that? Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. Okay, When was our body united to Christ in his death? Answer, in our baptisms. Romans 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, uh, and and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. For if I do not understand my own actions, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not uh, do what I want, but I do the things I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's that sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but the, not the ability to carry it out. For I, do not do, uh, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who, do, who does it, but it is sin that dwells within me. Now Paul here is speaking in the present tense. This is currently his state at the time he's writing this. 
The things he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. You, you, and many people, they try to shave off the hard edges here and basically say, oh, Paul here is talking about what it was, the struggle that he went through before he was a Christian. No, that doesn't even make sense. First of all, it's grammatically incorrect. Absolutely not. You can't get that from the grammar and from the tense of the verbs, okay? Paul is speaking present tense at the time he's writing this. He's speaking as one who is the Apostle Paul. Second, it doesn't make any sense. Um, those people who are not regenerated uh, through the preaching of the gospel, they're de- still dead in their trespasses and sins, they don't struggle against their flesh. Uh, they rather enjoy the the sins of the flesh, enjoy them greatly. And they're not concerned about the sins that lead to death and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. They're still slaves to sin, and they kind of like their master. So this doesn't make any sense on two, on two uh, very clear fronts. This is present tense. Paul is speaking about the Christian life now. You want to know what the Christian life is like currently uh, for Christians? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do not want to do, uh, I, I want to do, I don't do. Uh-huh. That's what all of this, so all of this is going on here. So notice he's building an edifice, okay? He's talked about all our, uh, no one is righteous, no, not one, and then we're all, that we're saved by, not all of us, but those people who are saved are saved by grace through faith alone. They're declared righteous through the shed blood of Christ. He is sufficient. Does that mean that we can keep on sinning? Absolutely not, because sin is slavery. Sinning is slavery to sin. You don't, you know, we're slaves to righteousness because in our baptisms, we are in Christ. We've been put into his death and we will be raised and be like him. Okay. And now he talks about the struggle. The things I don't want to do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who does it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's right, the regenerated uh, part of us. But I see that uh, that new heart of flesh that God gives us replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. So I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, Romans 8 doesn't make sense unless you want, unless you first read 6 and 7, especially 7. Because then we get to the, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the resolve of the tension that's created in Romans 7. And it's addressing, specifically addressing, uh, the fact that we are both sinners and saint. We are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and still struggling as sinners in this life. Okay, It doesn't make any sense unless you put it back in its full context. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however... You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to, li- uh, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he, uh, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Does that make sense now? Put it back into its fuller context, you'll see what's going on there. Now with that in mind, this fuller context in your head and fresh, let's continue with the sermon. What a lot of people would love for me to preach is the first half of that verse as a standalone principle kind of dangling out there in the universe excusing any lifestyle you ever want to choose. 
In fact, you hear this sometimes, you know, the Bible says there's no condemnation. I was having a conversation with a guy the other day. I mean, he happened to be living with somebody who wasn't his wife. And he said, uh, what do you think about that at your church? I said, we think it's a sin. And he said, well, is it like worse than homosexuality? Where does it rank on the scale? And I was like, we don't do the scale of sin thing. We just preach about Jesus and sin is sin. And we teach people to repent and we accept you like you are. And he said, but the Bible says there's no condemnation. So how can you tell me that I can't live uh, with someone I'm not married to? And really that, that line of thinking is derived from basically cutting the apostle Paul off in the middle of his sentence and not even hearing the rest of what he has to say. So people now keep in mind because I just read this in context this issue was addressed in Romans 6. So here the, the pentacle of this of, of this epistle is Romans 8 the crescendo there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the crescendo. And because he's preaching this out of context it's no longer the crescendo he's having to go back and do cleanup work for those people who would turn the gospel of Jesus Christ into a license to sin. But that was already addressed in Romans 6, and because he's preaching Romans 8 out of context, now what's supposed to be these amazing, comforting words of the gospel, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that, all the great gospel stuff there is now qualified. And as a result of it, we're not hearing the gospel. Instead, what we're hearing is, oh, yeah, well, a lot of people would want me to preach this as, you know, a a particular way. It's like, I wish you would preach it in context because then you wouldn't be making this point at this with this passage because that's addressed in Romans 6 in context, and we would be able to hear the gospel without any qualifications the way you're doing it because all of that stuff was addressed ahead of time in Paul's letter, and we get and when you listen when you read it in context the way it was intended to be read, Romans 8 was not intended to be read in isolation to the rest of the of of the epistle. <sighs> so now we've got the gospel with all kinds of qualifications and we're not hearing the gospel, we're hearing about people who are misusing the gospel when in reality we all need to be hearing the gospel. It's it's really sad because it sounds gospelish but because we're starting in the middle of the book, we're not hearing this properly, and the case hasn't been built, and he's going and kind of stealing the thunder of the passage. I mean, it'd be like playing the 1812 overture and firing off the cannons in the first movement rather than at the end. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. People love to do this with Scripture verses. I could give you several other examples of how people love to just pluck out the part of the verse that inspires them and motivates them, run with that, and then wonder why it doesn't really seem to work that way. Like there's this wonderful verse in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 to be exact, that says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. People love to quote that, but they forget the fact that that chapter in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29 is written in the context of God's people being carried into captivity in a foreign land. Uh, props on you. Props on you, uh, Pastor Furtick, for pointing that out, because uh, we're constantly having to clean up a bunch of seeker-driven and purpose-driven pastors who are mangling 
uh, Jeremiah 29. I'm glad that you're at this at this point pointing out how putting it in its greater context. The irony here is is because you're starting in Romans 8 and you haven't done the the let let God's word speak the way it should speak and build its own case what you've done is you've taken the passage out of context and now we're not hearing the gospel crescendo uh, you're you're having to do uh, stuff that's dealt with in Romans 6 here in Romans 8 where it shouldn't be being dealt with and God says, after 70 years have passed, I'll bring you back into your land. And so people love to get to the, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Whoop, give me a Mercedes. Whoop, Jesus, give me a job. Whoop, Jesus, give me a, send me a husband. And, and, and yanked out of context, um, while that verse is absolutely true and the merit of it stands without exception, you, you got to understand something of the context. Now, people, and pretty much in, in our modern society, um, the average person would say amen to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, up to a certain point. Let's read it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And, and, and the people said, amen. So you want to shack? You can shack. No condemnation. Uh, you you want to um, leave your wife for somebody hotter and, and more understanding of you? No condemnation. No condemnation. If, if you need to cheat a little to make a little more, no condemnation. Uh, Jesus uh, loves the little children. No condemnation. Do your thing. Sleep with whoever. If you feel it and you like it, you can do it. Because after all, the Bible says there's no condemnation. And I think if Paul was here, he'd be like, hold up. Can I finish my thought? I said there is... And here's the irony. If uh, Paul were there in Charlotte, he'd be saying, hold up, Pastor Furtick. Not only do I need to finish my argument, it would have been nice if you had actually let me begin it. Because this is the finishing of my argument, and you've missed the whole beginning, middle, and, and all of that. So now, here at the end of my thought... You're picking it up at the conclusion, and you've missed everything else. As a result of it, you're not getting the full thunder, the full good news, the great stuff that's really packed into this passage. Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Will you at least finish the, the whole verse? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to start. This, this idea that we're going to explore for the next couple of weeks of how we are free from condemnation through the cross of Christ with an assertion, and I say this dogmatically, there is condemnation. It's not like the, the proposition of Romans 8 is, hey, no matter who you are or what you do, don't worry, because God's going to get you on the bus somehow. We'll get you ticket in heaven somehow. We'll get you, we'll get you punched in at the door. If you make it just, just before we close up shop, we'll find you a place in the courts of the king. And that's not- If you had just read Romans in context, you wouldn't be having to say any of this. And as a result of it, it sounds like you're qualifying the gospel. <sighs> that's not what Paul's saying. There is no condemnation, watch this, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Finish the thought. 
Yeah, see, and that's the thing. If we had actually started the thought, we'd know that condemnation is discussing the wrath of God. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, is a reference back to the fact that we are in Christ through our baptisms. That's what Romans 6 says. So, I mean, all of, all of that comes into play. And then this, you know, the therefore, that's all the concluding thoughts of, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of sin? But there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't get to Romans 8 without 6 and 7 because it doesn't make sense without them. <sighs> and that's the part that, that this, this modern society has a real problem with. That you who call yourself a Christian claim to believe if you stand on this book. And, and that is this. That if you are in Christ Jesus, there can never be condemnation. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, you are already condemned. See, now this is... This is true. This is tricky. Well, I just thought of something. You know, Okay, before he launches into this next point, I, I want to say up front, this next point that he's going to make is actually brilliant. It's very astute what he's going to make, this next point. And and so, again, this is a mixed bag sermon. There's some good and there's some uh, in here. And remember I told you, it was many, as, I've, as I study and I read and I watch and I listen to S- Stephen Furtick's, I feel like there's two of them, okay? Both of them come out in this sermon. That's the weird part. But this part here, this is, this is the part of Stephen Furtick that really wrestles with some of the deeper issues and weightier issues of God's Word. And this point that he's going to make, oh, wow, this is, this is actually very good. And l- l- let me continue. I know how, if you're any, in any way familiar with Bible stories, when Noah built the ark, in fact, <laughs> I think this is Genesis chapter 7 and 8. You can look this up. But, but wouldn't it be interesting if it was? Because in Romans chapter 7 and verse 8, we have the Apostle Paul talking about this, this struggle within him. He's talking about how he's pulled by the old patterns and the old habits that, that used to be a part of his life before he met Christ. And now he has a new nature which desires to do things God's way. But he finds himself tripping up and slipping up and not doing what God said to do. And he can't sometimes bring together what he wants to do now that he knows God with what he does do since he spent so much of his life apart from God. And there's this reconciliation and things never seem to balance. And in the context of that, he, he makes this great proclamation. But if you are in Christ, there's, there's no condemnation no matter what you feel, no matter what you do. If you belong to him, if, if you're found in him, you have a righteousness that doesn't come from you. It comes from him. Right, right, right. So this is the imputed righteousness. He's wrestling with this. It gets better. Let's keep listening. So in the Old Testament, we have this man named Noah who's building a boat to preserve humanity. And the, and the watching world thinks he's pretty stupid because it's never rained before and he's talking about a flood. And so what they want to know is, why are you spending decade after decade constructing this vessel to prepare for a storm that we've never seen? But the Bible says, this is really interesting now that I put it all together, 
in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, that after the floods receded off the face of the earth, God remembered Noah. So isn't it interesting, follow me people, that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we have the Apostle Paul saying, the only way to escape the condemnation that is in the world, the only way to escape punishment for your sin is to be found in Christ. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we have this one man and the only way that he could escape judgment in the world was to be in the ark. What the ark was in the Old Testament, Jesus is in the New Testament. Brilliant point. Again, I, this guy is capable of uh, like, uh, oh, it. Th- um, no, that was oh, that was so good. That is so spot on. Not only that, this theme is p- picked up by the apostle Peter. Let me read from uh, Peter's epistle, First Peter chapter three, starting at verse eighteen. L- l- track with me here. What did he? What was? What was Furtick's point? He says. Those, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and he likens it back to the ark, how there was salvation in the ark, and in a very real way, Jesus is the ark, and in our baptisms, we are buried with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. We are in Christ. Peter picks up on this theme. For Christ also, this is 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to This now saves you, not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. Peter ties Noah and Christ together and basically points out that Noah... It, you know, you know that it, the ark, it, eight persons were saved through water. We're saved in the same way. Baptism, which corresponds to the flood of Noah and the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. You tie that in with Romans 6, and you've got some powerful preaching that you can do here. But see, most people, they think that uh, baptism is something we do. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't put myself into Christ. But that's what God does in our baptisms, and here the Noah theme comes in. So I, I'm, I'm excited for Stephen Furtick for, for figuring this out through uh, his wrestling with God's Word. And the point that he just made is a good one. But we continue. If you are found in him, the storms of life might rage all around you. The storms of disobedience may rage within you. But if you're in him. If you're found in Christ, it is the privilege and the right of the believer to declare with the apostle Paul, I am not condemned. And if you believed in Christ and put your faith in Christ, you never have to live one moment of your life under the condemnation of the sin that you've committed. And now we're starting to get slippery. 
you'll notice that what he's he's poured two definitions into the word condemnation and he's using them both simultaneously. This is where we start to experience some slippage. Let's continue. And that's good news. That's the best news you'll ever hear. If you're in him, you're not condemned. If you're not in him, if your faith is not fixed in Jesus, if you're not in the ark, if you haven't cast your your hope for this life and the life to come, you, you are condemned. This terminology of condemnation has a completely different meaning to us today. When we think condemnation, we think people saying bad things about us. That's not really the context of the Apostle Paul's writing. He, he's, he's, actually, he's actually talking about somebody condemned to die. Somebody who has had a death sentence conferred on them. Right. And, and so we talk about no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is more than just you don't ever have to feel bad feelings about yourself again. This is like you're standing with God. Right. If you're in him, if if your faith is locked up in what he's done for you, there is therefore now no condemnation. Even the people who, who like to take this verse and slice it up and chop it in half like firewood and say, There's no condemnation. I can live like hell and expect to go to heaven because there's no condemnation. I don't need any moral standards to tell me how to live, especially not the archaic moral standards of the Bible. You find when you discuss with these people on any level that's halfway intelligent, they don't really believe that there's no condemnation. They really wouldn't want to live in a world where there was no condemnation. Ask them if if their daughter was raped Ask, ask them if their child was molested, would they want to see justice and punishment brought upon that individual? Yeah, I mean, I want to see him locked up for the rest of his life so he couldn't hurt anybody. Oh, condemnation. Condemnation. That's condemnation. There's no condemnation. And so what we, what we mean when we say there's no condemnation and we put a period where Paul put a comma is I, I want to... I, I, I got to clean that up. Uh, Stephen, you know that... Uh, Paul didn't write in with commas or periods. This was an unsel script, right? Yeah, all the words were just kind of <clears throat> run together. Yeah, and, uh, the punctuation, it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just want to let you know that. I want to stay out of the ark, and I don't want to drown in the flood. And the thing I want to say that might sound really old-fashioned to you, but I'll keep saying it as long as God gives me breath in my body, is that there is only one way to be saved from the wrath of God that punishes disobedient men for their sins. And I'm glad that God is a God of love and wrath and justice. I would not want to serve a God who did not punish sin. And I would not want to live in a world that he created where sin went unpunished. But there's an ark. There is a savior. There is a way. There is a cross. There is a substitutionary death. Amen. Again, this is the good part about it. A little bit mixed here in the beginning, and oh, if only he had stopped here. Man, I'm telling you. That Christ died, and if you're in him, like the old hymn writer said, 
dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, then you can square your shoulders and say with confidence, there is no condemnation. Good. He's fleshing out the gospel at this point. Oh, man, I just... uh, uh, The gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, let me do this. I'm going to shift from talking about this general idea of not knowing Jesus and being condemned for your sin and how you need to place your faith in him in order to... uh, have eternal life. And uh, notice the Pelagian thing here. Now he's he says he's switching gears. Now comes the other part of the sermon. The clear exposition of God's word and the gospel. Now we're switching to something different. It's like I said, when I as I've studied this guy, there's two of them. Here comes is it Mr. Hyde? Yeah. And in order to be saved and forgiven of your sins. Now I want to shift and talk about how this principle that really isn't a principle, it's more about a person, that that God the Father laid all of the condemnation on Jesus, and so he will never condemn you for a sin that he already conferred on Jesus. God's not going to punish the same sin twice. He laid all of your sins on Jesus. That's why there's no condemnation. If there were no condemnation in the world, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come and die. It would have been senseless for him to die on a cross if there were just no condemnation, period. But for for those of you who place your faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul is saying to you, not only are you free from the penalty of sin when you stand before God one day, you don't have to put up with condemnation in your daily life when the enemy starts telling you things about yourself that are no longer true now that you're in Christ. Now, now that is, is the practical application of... Uh, this is where it gets creepy. Um, Paul in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I, the, you know what I'm saying. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of sin? He doesn't say, oh, devil, be gone from me. I, it's no longer true that I sin or that I'm not, I'm not a sinner anymore. you got to be real careful that you don't draw conclusions that are not clearly founded and taught and explained in the text, which I fear is where Stephen is going with this. Of this. Now that you've got the theological underpinning, let me walk this out with you practically. I, I, I gave this message uh, two different titles, and one of the titles was, You Don't Suck Anymore. Write that on the top of your page. What I did was... Um, Yeah, the problem is is that the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Chief of sinners, though I be. That comes from the Apostle Paul's confession about himself. Yeah. Boy, I tell you, evangelicalism has a tough time figuring out how the gospel works plays into their theology because for the most part they have a theology that teaches people to suppress and stick their head in the sand regarding their sin rather than confess it and be forgiven that's the and that's the issue here and so here Stephen Furtick I mean we heard the gospel and then it got qualified it got it they almost suffered the death of a thousand qualifications but then he kind of recovered and came back and 
and gave it to us and 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 now he's got to find a practical application of this thing because that's how everybody reads the scripture we got to find practical applications you know but the text itself doesn't doesn't call for a practical application stop and rest in the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus it doesn't tell us to deny that we're sinful, but to confess that we are sinful and be forgiven. Well, how does the Apostle John say it? If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And at worst, we make God out to be a liar. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My fear is, is that as we listen to the second part of the sermon, we're going to be dealing, be dealing with more of Stephen Furtick's psyche and some of the uh, the real issues that he struggles with. And as a result of it, you know, we're in search of an application when the text doesn't call for an application. Not like this. And so as a result of it, it may actually be bad advice that we're going to hear here. But let's, let's listen in and see if it's, it's as bad as I uh, fear. I went through my own life, and I've been studying the Scriptures pretty hardcore for over a decade now. And I did, a, I did an in-depth study of how condemnation operates in the life of a believer in Jesus. What I want to do is read to you in no real discernible order, just kind of in a stream of consciousness kind of way, how condemnation works in, in my life and how it, it's probably working in your life. No, notice he's switching definitions here. The, the condemnation that Paul is talking about in Romans 8.1 is the condemnation of God's wrath. Uh, his just condemnation of our sins, declaring us to be sinners uh, that whom he should punish. Whereas the gospel gives us the, that we are declared righteous by faith in Christ, by his shed blood. He's switching categories here, and this is, this is one of the reasons why applications, trying to find an application for every passage, can actually lead you away from what the text is saying. Because I don't think there's any more destructive dynamic at work in the lives of believers than condemnation. And, and I think that more Christians are derailed by condemnation than are derailed by loose living. In other words, I think more Christians give up on their faith in God because they feel like they can never measure up than the number of Christians who give up on God because they weren't trying and just went out in sin. That would be guilt, not condemnation. It's kind of, at this point, that condemnation more than likely is as a result of not clearly hearing the gospel for believers. What did he say? Many Christians give up because they don't feel like they measure up. The problem is they're not hearing the gospel. Instead, they're always hearing law and not grace. And they they don't think that the grace applies to Christians. That's the problem. And as a result of it, the, the, the condemnation of the law it, it makes them feel guilty, and they know they don't measure up. And what they need is the forgiveness of their sins and to be brought back to the good news that there, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <sighs> Evangelicalism struggles, struggles, struggles with the gospel. 
Now, I've identified for you here kind of the personification of condemnation. And I'm going to tell you in in just a few sentences, and please don't try to write all of these down. I'm going to to post them all on my blog this week. Um, And so you don't need to feel like you need to write all of them down. I just want you to listen. I'm going to show you what the voice of condemnation sounds like. And since we already know that if you're in Christ, that you're never supposed to put up with condemnation, then the most helpful thing I could do for you is to help you identify what condemnation sounds like, what it looks like, and, and, and then you can start to really walk in the fullness of the blessing of God that, that Paul talks about here. Okay, so condemnation operates through the power of suggestion. Condemnation tells you things like, you're so stupid. You'll never be able to raise your children the right way. Okay, now, is this the condemnation of God's law, or does this just sound like the condemnation that comes from screwy legalistic people who... Uh, well, you don't understand what I'm saying here. We've sw- the the definition of condemnation has switched now, and this is not good. Uh, we were on the biblical trail, and now we're off roading. Uh. You'll never be able to get in physical shape because your mom was overweight and your dad was overweight, and it's genetic. You'll never be able to rise up above this certain sin pattern in your life because it's just the way you are. You're not worthy of God's love. You're not worthy of his grace. You're not worthy the blessings that he's brought into your life. You don't deserve this. Condemnation, I'm just going to speak with you from the heart because all of this that I'm sharing with you is emerging from, I don't mean to sound too weird here, but the voices that I've heard in my own head. Right. Stephen? Dude, I know what you're going through. I know the struggle that's inside of you. I have I have slugged through this battle and through this quagmire myself. The solution is in the first half of your preaching, not the second half. This other stuff, this is burbling up from inside of you, not from within the mind of God and Christ and the gospel. The solution is actually in Romans 8 put back into its context. And for good measure, you need to hear that you need to hear that your sins are forgiven, dude. You need to hear you need to hear absolution from another believer. That's what you really truly need. Because it's obvious, it is so obvious that you have some demons that you are wrestling with in your life. And the solution is not denying that they're there or saying, Oh, well, this verse says I don't have to put up with that condemnation. The solution is to hear that your sins are forgiven, that Christ died for that. And to be reminded that in your baptism you were put into Christ, into his death and resurrection. You are in Christ. You are found in him. This is stuff that needs to be spoken from outside of you. Where Where you're going with this sermon is not good news. Because you're, at this point bringing to this sermon a completely different source of revelation. It's not the Bible. It's the stuff that's going on inside of you. 
The stuff that's going on inside of you is the problem. It's not the solution. Condemnation is tricky because it's a counterfeit form of repentance and conviction. Condemnation will show you how much you need to change, but will simultaneously convince you that you could never change. Condemnation has a a strategy. And again, when when I talk about condemnation, understand I'm not talking about like a force in the universe. This isn't some new age thing, although I'd love to be on Oprah's show and sell a book about this if she ever decides to have me on. But um, think about it this way. When we talk about the devil and we talk about um, some of these concepts that we'll get into in Romans chapter 8 in the coming weeks, the flesh and patterns of, of sin that need to be broken in your life. I'm personifying this one element of how Satan or, you know, sometimes Satan doesn't even have to get involved. All he has to do is set a, a thought pattern in motion and then he can go, he can go on, on, on vacation because you'll do the job of tearing yourself down just fine without his help. Um, condemnation ha- has this strategic maneuver and, and, it, and it goes like this. Before you sin, condemnation tells you it's not really that big of a deal. Go ahead and do it. After you sin, condemnation tells you that was such a big deal, God wants nothing to do with you. So, so watch this. I call this the, the cul-de-sac of condemnation. The first house that you stop by in, in this process is, is rationalization. Rationalization is the right-hand man of condemnation. Because rationalization has to has to work you over before condemnation can do any work in your life. So it's not that bad. Go ahead and look. Go ahead and drink it. And then, you know, six or seven glasses later, you're sitting there feeling like a complete hypocrite. Now, two hours ago, it was a rationalization thing. Now it's full-blown exaggeration. Exaggeration is condemnation's spin doctor. Exaggeration is when condemnation takes a a moment in your life where you had a lapse in reasoning or a lapse in fortitude and courage, and and, and then condemnation will take the opportunity to say, see there, you did that, therefore you are this. What a hypocrite you are. See there, you said you were going to live for God and you just cussed your mom out under your breath because you'd never be stupid enough to do it to her face. See there, you're not a real Christian. You said you were going to bring your friend to church and then you chickened out. So condemnation knows how to try to cement you into a way of seeing yourself based on an action in one moment. Condemnation will bury you. Condemnation will suck you in. Uh, The problem is, is that in the cases that you cited, let's say cussing your mother out under your breath. You have broken the commandment that says honor your father and mother. Chickening out about bringing your friend to church, that might be a breaking of the commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. In in each of those cases, God's law is the thing condemning us not Satan. It's God's law that's condemning us, and and rightly so. Read Romans 7. 
I mean, when the law condemns us, it's not that the law is unjust or the law is evil. It It's there to point out our sin. And so it's not Satan who's saying to us, oh, you're a sinner. That's God's law saying that. So that sin must be forgiven. We must see ourselves as forgiven sinners. Not stick our head in the sand and say, well, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. That means I don't have to put up with that condemnation. Ultimately, the solution is Christ and his blood, but we have, to be, we have to be brought to that point. I'm not saying we're saved by confessing. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is that the solution is not <clears throat> a self-image issue. It's an issue is seeing the sin as bled and died for. Faster than justification of your sin, condemnation will beat you down. It will eat you alive. Condemnation will will show you a picture of yourself that is so far from what God intended you to be. And then condemnation will sing you to sleep while you live up to that expectation that it created in your mind. I'm telling you, when the Apostle Paul says, I need you to know something in the middle of, of this very important book of the Bible about justification, you need to know that if you are in Christ, you never have to come running when condemnation calls. You never have to carry on a conversation with condemnation. When God speaks, he does not condemn his children. When God speaks, he, he does not He does not beat you up. I, I get tired of having conversations with people where they say things like this. Man, God was, God was speaking to me the other day and he really just kicked my butt. No, he didn't. Not if you're his child. No, he didn't. I don't talk like that about my son. I was talking to Elijah the other day. I just kicked his butt. Don't put something on God that, 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 that isn't a part of his character and his nature. You're his child. Don't kick your butt. Now, sometimes the scriptures does say that God disciplines those he loves. Maybe the person saying that committed an egregious sin and God, through his word, condemned that sinner and disciplined him. Think of David. David, the, you know, you, the son of David, you know, King David. Jesus is the son of David. Well, his great, 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 great grandfather, David, uh, the man whose throne Jesus will sit on forever, David. David committed murder and adultery, and he sent the prophet Nathan to, quote, confront him with his sins. You could argue, one could make the case arguably that Nathan, quote, kicked his butt. And David, even though David's sins were forgiven, there was a severe and horrible consequence to his sins. God disciplines those he loves. So, yeah, God does discipline his children. Now, I've got three kids, and I don't kick their butts. Uh, Well, they're all too big for that anyway. But I have paddled their bottoms. See what I'm saying? He'll correct you, but he won't condemn you. 
When he corrects you, he shows you specifically what he wants to do in you. When, when you're condemned, there's just a general sense that you suck. God doesn't tell his children that they suck. You know what condemnation does? Condemnation paralyzes your potential to change. Is any of this resonating with anyone? Because the voice of condemnation... No, it's not, because I'm not seeing you making this case biblically. As you admitted when you turned the corner away from Romans 8, at the midway point through the sermon, you are now preaching the stuff that's inside of you and... uh, I, I, I'm, I'm challenging it, throwing a flag on the play, play saying, yeah, you, you're going to have to show me from Scripture because I have other passages that seem to contradict what you're saying. For me, has cost me so much time and so much opportunity. Um, condemnation loves comparison. Condemnation loves to show you how you're not measuring up. Condemnation loves competition. Condemnation leads to arrested development. Condemnation is a holding pattern. Condemnation becomes a cop-out. There's an old song by Gin Blossoms. It says, if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. That's kind of like the theme song of condemnation. Don't expect too much of yourself. You're just an old sinner saved by grace. Don't you expect too much of yourself? And, and, and when God speaks and he calls you to repent, he doesn't beat you down lower. He calls you up higher. Don't you ever come running when condemnation calls. Ever. And condemnation isn't something that you can reduce in your life. You just have to ruthlessly eliminate it. Yeah, see, here's again the problem here is he began in a clear text and he taught the clear text. He he moderately mishandled it, but uh, somewhat mostly landed on his feet. He stuck the landing. And now I don't know where we are. Again, you can't teach sound biblical doctrine by teaching things that are not clearly taught in God's Word. I'm hearing the reasonings of Stephen Furtick based upon the experiences of his life. And I know a few things about his life. It's all coming through, but see, his life isn't biblical, and all these things that people are saying amen to at this point, my simple question is chapter and verse. Uh, Can you show me where that thing that you've just asserted regarding condemnation is actually clearly taught in the Bible the way you're teaching it? Like, I have a Twitter account, and I follow about 170 different people. But there's this button called unfollow that if I ever don't feel like the messages that you're sending out that are coming to my portable electronic device are encouraging me and blessing me and are interesting to me anymore. I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to read them. I don't have to deal with them. There's another button called block. That's when I don't even want you to be able to follow me and know what I'm doing anymore. Yeah. By the way, he has blocked me. However, I still follow him. He just doesn't know it. 
I love those buttons. When it comes to condemnation, you got to find the unfollow button. And, 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 and you know what? Condemnation is a master communicator. Condemnation will talk to you on whatever level that, that you're going to listen and fall in line with what condemnation is trying to tell you. So condemnation will shout up in your face. And, and condemnation will, will roll up on you like a thug. Or condemnation will whisper to you softly and call you back down and say, who do you really think you are to be taking that risk for God? And who do you really think you are to be stepping out and sharing your faith? Who do you really think you are to be taking that risk for God? Oh, boy, here comes the sun stand still, stand still stuff. <sighs> there are two Stephen Furtick's. There are two of them. One who wrestles with God's word and what it says and the other one who receives direct revelation and visions from God. Double-minded is the thing that comes to mind here. Come on back over here. Or condemnation will scream at you and bust a cap in your head. Condemnation doesn't care. As long as condemnation can keep you from being who you are in Christ, condemnation doesn't care how it has to do it. Condemnation will communicate to you on multiple levels, whatever it takes to get your attention. I know some of you are thinking, why are you spending so much time talking about the bad stuff? Because I don't want you to operate in ignorance concerning the devil's offensive strategy in your life. Satan cannot operate where there is knowledge, where there is light. He can only operate in the darkness when you do not understand. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to attune you to what condemnation sounds like so that you'll make a decision to never, ever listen to that crap, sorry, garbage. Again, I don't want to condemn condemnation. And, and I'm very, very serious about this, people. You... You must not take condemnation on yourself that God already laid on Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Woo! I don't have to listen to that garbage. I don't have to, I don't have to follow that stream of thought. What I've been doing. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. <sighs> Misapplication of the gospel here in such a way that I'm not even sure exactly how he's applying it at this point. Why? Because it doesn't. This isn't clearly taught in God's word. I would have to exegete the mind of Stephen Furtick, and if he's anything like me, and that's a sinner who's really complicated and screwed up, exegeting his mind would be a quagmire. Every bit as exegeting my mind would be a quagmire. Ah, <sighs> lately, I hope this will help you. I've been like. I've been finishing the devil's sermons for him when he starts preaching to me. I know that sounds kind of weird, but, you know, Satan is the father of lies. But when condemnation comes into your life, it's always rooted in a half-truth. And so... Uh, no, no, when condemnation comes in my life, most of the time it's rooted <laughs> just flat-out truth. I broke the commandment. <laughs> End of story. 
It's that's not a half truth. That's the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help me God. For the 14 years, there went the egg timer. Shut up. I condemn you. For the 14 years. Now notice something here. The I, I got to back this up. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, three minutes in, he said that when the egg timer goes off, he's going to stop where he's at and pray and end the sermon. That was his verbal contract and promise to the people that he spoke to in his congregations. He made a joke of it. Listen again. Let me back this up just a smidge. In a half-truth. And so for the 14 years, there went the egg timer. Shut up. I condemn you. For the 14 years that I've been a Christian... Now, he's going to gloss it over, but here's the deal. He broke the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He lied. His yes wasn't yes, and his no wasn't no. His own words condemn him. According to God's law, he has lied. He hasn't spoken the truth. His yes isn't yes, and his no isn't no. And even though he's in the middle of an important thought that he thinks is important... At the beginning of the sermon, he said that when the timer goes off, he would stop and pray. It's not a half-truth to say that his own words condemn him at this point. That's the whole truth. What he should do is say, I will honor my word, and we will stop. But he doesn't honor his word. He dishonors his word and disrespects those people and, sadly, doesn't ask for their forgiveness for lying to them. Should he rightly be condemned for not speaking the truth? According to God's law, absolutely. Should he confess his sin and be forgiven? Yes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. God's wrath is propitiated. It's the blood of Christ that saves us. He should honor that forgiveness by speaking truthfully about the fact that he isn't keeping his word. That's right. For the 14 years that I've been a Christian, I've been trying to like argue with these Thoughts of condemnation that come in my mind. Oh, you're not, you're not, you're not worth, worthy. You're not any good. You're, you're, you're nobody. And so I try to argue. Well, now when one of those thoughts of condemnation come to me, I just agree with it. But then I finish the thought out. Let me show you how, how this works. So condemnation will tell you, uh, you don't have what it takes. And so you might be tempted to be like, yes, I do. I have what it takes, you know, and psych yourself up in the mirror and chest bump yourself and get fired up. You know what I'm saying? But, but, but that won't really work because, because condemnation um, is telling you a partial truth. You don't have what it takes. And so now when I get that feeling, I don't have what it takes, I, I realize that's the devil preaching to me. He's trying to get me to take that to a place of, and since I don't have what it takes, I shouldn't even try, and I'm so worthless, and I'm no good. But now, I'm a pretty good preacher, so I just, I, I just tag team 
preach with that half truth. And I say, that's right. I don't have what it takes, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So in effect, the fact that I don't have what it takes increases my capacity to receive from a God who has more than I'll ever need. Or, or like a thought of condemnation. Another one. Now we're switching into kind of a Joel Osteen word faith kind of thing. Weird. We'll, we'll be like this. Like, you're not worthy of God's love. And I'll be like, absolutely. Thank you for reminding me that I'm not worthy of God's love. And that my hope isn't in the fact that I'm lovable. But my hope is in the fact that what shall separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. My Lord, thank you for reminding me, condemnation. That's a pretty good sermon. And you know what? If you do this enough, and if you finish the devil's sermon and respond with the truth, pretty soon he'll stop preaching to you because he won't like the conclusion that you bring the service to. Eventually, he's going to shut his mouth and he's not going to be able to condemn you as much anymore because you see right through it. Man, I used to, I used to want to date this girl that was on the volleyball team, and so I went to a few volleyball games, um, and, and I learned about bump, set, spike. Bump, set, spike. That's all I know about volleyball, but that's basically the sequence of, you know, bump, set, spike. Somebody bumps the ball, another person sets it, and the last person spikes it. So in this area of condemnation, I want you to look for bump, set, spike opportunities this week. I want you to look for opportunities where, like, this suggestive thought comes in your mind, and the devil starts exaggerating this sin, and so you're impatient with your kids, and now all of a sudden, you're not a good father, and you're not fit, and DSS should just take them away, and they'd be better off if they'd never had a parent, and you feel so terrible because you wanted to create magical memories with your children, and now all you're doing is scarring them for life, and they'll grow up one day to tell everybody about how they survived through an abusive home, and how if it hadn't been for the grace of God, and it all started with you, and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna grow up to treat their kids the same way, and it's just going to be a cycle and now look at you, you worthless hypocrite. Who do you even think you are to go to church? You ought to stay home this week. And pretty soon you stay home enough weeks and, 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 then, and then you do become a terrible parent. But here's the thing. <laughs> if, if you look for the bump set and then spike that thing with the truth of God's word, now the essence of condemnation has been distilled down to a statement that teaches you not to rely on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. And that's exactly where God would have you to be. Finish the devil's sermons for him. You, you, could, you can do this. You can do this 20, 30 times a day. Because condemnation is going to keep calling as long as you're alive. With every failure, with every fear. I want to say to you today, as someone who fights this battle personally and daily. That you have every right and every reason to believe that not only will Jesus one day when you stand before him confer his righteousness on you and let you into a place called heaven. This verse says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now 
Condemnation will try to keep you stuck in the past, what you did. But if it can't keep you stuck in the past, it'll keep you looking forward to the future. The way most of us read that verse is like this. There will one day be no condemnation when I stand before God because I accepted Jesus in my life and so I'm going to go to heaven. That's not what Paul said. He said there is now no condemnation. In the middle of your dysfunction, there is now no condemnation. In the middle of your struggle against sin. And so what we do is is we confuse the fact that we struggle with sin and we start thinking that we are under the control of sin. And the fact that you're conflicted inside of you and sometimes you do well and sometimes you obey God and sometimes you don't has nothing to do with who you are. There is now no condemnation. So when are you holy? When you stand before God one day? Yes, then, but right now too. You're holy right now. Jesus lives in you right now. His blood was shed for you right now. You're pure right now. You're forgiven right now. You're free right now. Not just someday up there, pie in the sky when you die by and by. Right here, right now, there's no condemnation in me because I'm in Jesus and Jesus took the sting of shame away and not only so I can go to heaven, in one day, but so that in this life, I am not condemned. Clap your hands, all of our locations, for the forgiveness of Jesus, for the freedom that is yours in Jesus. There is no condemnation. Hmm. I want to say amen. The problem is, is that which definition is he working from? The biblical one from the first half of the sermon or the psychological, I'm kind of torn within myself, screwed up, um, condemnation that, yeah. Yeah, I just, wow. For those who are in Christ Jesus, let's pray together all of our locations. Father, we thank you. Okay, we're done. Yeah, mixed bag, mixed bag. Again, I, I'm, I'm encouraged. Ironically, I'm encouraged by the struggle that uh, Pastor Furtick is going through, and uh, I, you know, I give him props. The first half of the sermon, he, he was, he was in the right ballpark. He may not have run the bases in the correct order, but you know, I think he kind of touched most of them. Second half of the sermon, um. He might want to save that kind of stuff for his time with his therapist. That's all I can say. And that's not the condemnation that was talked about in Romans 8. Not when you put it in context. Do we hear about the forgiveness of sins? Yeah. I mean, they, 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 were, they weren't even gospel nuggets. I mean, they, they were chunks and big, beefy portions of gospel in there. But the, they kind of got diluted uh, with some bizarre definitions Enough to the point where I can't, in good conscience, claim this is a good sermon. It's, in fact, it's rather confusing, to be honest with you. What did, what did you think? Now, before you send me your email and I give out my email address, I, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
You'll see two friendly yellow buttons when you get there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Yeah, select one of them. You know, we depend upon you, literally depend upon you all to uh, pay our bills so that we can stay on the air. Of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.